0: welcome welcome to episode 21 in this episode i'm going to admit i made a mistake so welcome welcome so yes in the previous episode i made a mistake i sent people scurrying off looking for ventile smocks not knowing that snowsled have stopped production and snug have a lapse in production before they relaunch next spring so i sent people off looking for for smocks not being able to not being able to find them very easily um, very sad for me to hear that Snow Sled have stopped producing ventile clothing, particularly double blow because I had a, a custom uh, winter smock uh, made by them only relatively recently and that had some adjustments made to it last winter um, and I didn't realise that they w- were no longer producing any ventile clothing at all um this is my classic smock that i'm wearing today and if you're listening on the uh, audio podcast you'll just have to nip over to my blog or to youtube to to see the video if you want to see that Um but this is the classic smock and i'm wearing it in honor of snow sled um, i really love this smock this is the second one of these that i've had over the years um the previous one um one of the things i didn't like about it was um it didn't have these velcro uh, extra bits which is what i was talking about last time so if you do get the opportunity um, of getting a velcro smock try and get one with the velcro on now they're quite difficult to get hold of at the moment there are still some manufacturers of cotton smocks out there and um, not all of them ventile but to get a uk produced ventile smocks relatively difficult at the moment now I'm, i haven't double checked but i think hilltrek is still in operation um, and apologies double apologies if they're not um, but search for, for snow sled s- search for snow uh, snug pack and search for hilltrek um, on the internet, you'll at least find some second-hand ones, if some, if not a brand new one. And I know Snugpack have been selling off the the last of the previous line before they relaunch next spring as well. So have a look on their website, see if you can get um, something in the bargain uh, sales section of their website as well. I know at least one guy, Danny from the Bushcraft Journal, got one of those quite recently off their website. Um, the other suggestion that came in was from Helen. Helen Sheard, and she mentioned under the previous in the comments below the previous episode, why not make your own? And yeah, that's a viable option. Um, and she said what she did was she got an old sweatshirt, cut it up, used that as a uh, used it as a template, used it as a pattern, and cut out the material and sewed it up herself. And it's relatively easy to do if you've got access to uh, an electric sewing machine or even an old uh, Singer sewing machine that's even older than that. Um, you can produce something your own um, and plenty of people have got sewing machines in the cupboard or in the attic and you haven't got one maybe your mum's got one or your auntie's got one or your uncle's got one not to be sexist somebody in your family somewhere has probably got a sewing machine stowed away somewhere that you could use so you can get the material make your own and that is of course always another option and then there are non-ventile cotton smocks available from the likes of Bergens, uh, Norriner uh, Fjallraven all the Scandinavian manufacturers they tend to produce those sorts of things I prefer ventile personally because it does have some ability to shed water now this is single layer and this does get a bit wet if you get rained on it does come through I wouldn't wear it in the mountains but what I've got underneath this is a buffalo top a buffalo system special six shirt which is super warm and it's really really good as a combination because the pertex on the outer of the special 6 isn't great near fires it's not super great with sharp sticks and carrying things it can get snagged but the combination of the tough cotton ventile on the outside which will turn away the first um, shower and then The Pertex, which can be treated as well with things like Nikwax, that is also uh, moisture repelling and it's breathable, it's warm, it's comfortable, it all fits together very well, it's resilient and not massively expensive, you know, if you're comparing it to some jackets and some uh, thermal layers, Um, a buffalo and a a ventile isn't the most expensive option that you've got for the woods and it's a high performance one and it keeps you warm and relatively dry and it's tough and they last a long time so you know the value for money over the over a period of time is very good as well so anyway just a few more options i think i'm going to put out a separate video on um, some shell layers combined with thermal layers because I keep being asked lots of questions, both as part of the Ask Paul Kirtley question set that I'm often sent by people, often comes up. What jacket were you wearing in that last episode? On that other video I saw, what jacket were you wearing? Can you recommend a good shell layer for the woods? Can you recommend a good set of thermals for the woods? Um, i'm going to do something separate on that because i keep being asked and asked and asked and asked and asked about it and even though this isn't the paul kirtley kit show i do have a range of things which work for me and i'm happy to share that with you but i'll make a separate video and then whenever anybody asks me that question i can send you the link and you can watch it so keep an eye out for that coming soon i don't know if i'm going to have time to record anything much more on that today um it'll probably have to be another occasion where I record it so look out for that in another couple of weeks um in in the coming weeks as the days get longer as well I've got more time for filming um, because there's more daylight when the winter it gets quite tricky to get out for a walk and do a do an episode or do a video because um I like going for a walk and I like seeing nature and then filming one of these is, is sometimes a bit tricky anyway I'm waffling a couple of other things to say people have been asking after the last one is your tree and plant id course still open yes it is it's open until the end of march it's open until the 31st of march if you haven't got information about that already i will send you information just go to bit.ly bit.ly forward slash id masterclass stick your email address in there and i will send you the details that you need as well as some educational content that's useful either way there's no obligation but if you're interested in getting into that you better let me know soon so that I can send you that stuff. It's closing at the end of March. Um, There's quite a lot of people in there now who are getting on with module one and module two. Module three is out at the end of this month, and that's really the cutoff point. Um, Once we get into module three, if you're not up to speed by that point, if you're not getting up to speed by that point, it's kind of too late. You're going to have to wait till next year because everybody's rolling now and and really going for it in terms of the learning and in terms of the webinars, the live sessions. It's not just a bunch of stuff that I'm going to send you. Remember, I'm leading it. I'm in the portal um, commenting on people's questions, commenting on people's observations, and we have regular sessions live online in the form of webinars, which are quite long, and quite extensive and allow you direct contact with me as well so it's not as some people have said it's not just a uh a a bunch of information behind a a wall it's a course led by me personally where there's a lot of extensive very detailed very high quality information ask anybody that's already on the course and you've got access to me as well and it's it's great value and it's going up in price next year because i've added more and more and more stuff into it and so this is the last year you can get in at the current prices um, and it closes at the end of march so if you're interested um as i mentioned in the last episode of this and i'll mention again bit.ly bit.ly forward slash id masterclass i'll put it on the screen somewhere as well go there put your details in i will send you the information and then you can choose whether or not you want to join simple as also um last thing before we get into the questions again it's a bit admin heavy tonight but um or this afternoon it's not quite this evening yet um The other thing I would mention to you is I'm doing a special episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, In a couple of weekends time, so the weekend after next, Easter weekend, I'm running a Bushcraft Essentials course. It's a two-day course, and on that course, sometime on the saturday evening when we're around the campfire and people are relaxing a bit at the end of the day they've had their dinner before they spend the night out in a shelter or on a tarp or whatever they're doing as part of the course whatever they decided they want to do and those options are available to them we're going to do an episode of ask paul curtley with live questions um, there in the woods and then that'll be put out the following week so if you want to come do that course there's still spaces and frankly that's one of the reasons i'm mentioning it because i'm running a course it's a two-day course it's the first two-day course i'm running this year there's still spaces on it i'm disappointed people keep writing to me people keep asking me what can i do to help you can i can i contribute to your blog your blog material is worth paying for i would subscribe to ask paul sure that's great but you don't need to do that if you want to do one thing to help me apart from share this show with your friends the other thing you can do is if you can come on a course because that's what actually pays my bills um you know doing this is great and i like sharing information but what pays my bills is sharing information in person people coming to learn and it will be great to have a few more people on that first course and we're going to do an ask paul kirtley special episode live ask paul kirtley first live one i've ever done And if that works, maybe I'll do another one. Maybe it'll be a disaster. Who knows? Maybe this will be the only chance ever to do a live Aspore Kirtley. Um, But there's no extra charge. You just come and do the course. So you come and get the the training that you get anyway with me for two days. And Spoons is going to be helping me on that one as well. If you know Spoons, Um, come and do the course. And we'll get an Aspore Kirtley in as well in the evening on the Saturday evening. And it'll be a lot of fun so hopefully i'll see some of you there and there's an added incentive the first person that books a course after this episode airs and it could be by complete chance or it could be because you've watched this video but the first person who books i will send them free of charge i will send them a two and a half liter kirtley kettle because they're super little kettles and they're great for camping in the woods for making a brew for you and other people um so that's an added incentive to get booked on that course i will send you the first person who books on i will send you this this kettle if i don't break it in the meantime i will send you this kettle all right first question and i know we've got quite a lot to get through so um might not be the shortest session ever but um let's go 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 first question is from barry mclean and he asks about canoes and he says i have lots of experience of camping and hiking but reading your articles on canoeing and looking at local rivers i can see there's a lot more areas that could be used for camping my canoeing experience is limited to say the least where do i start well where indeed barry and um, that's quite a big question and um, one of the things i am going to do in the next few weeks if not into next month at some point when Ray Goodwin and I can get together is we are going to do a special episode of Ask Paul Curtley, where it's going to be largely Ask Ray Goodwin so if you've got questions about canoeing and canoe uh, skills in particular and particular starting canoeing then start send, sending them in um, put Ask Paul Curtley as per normal but also say in there question for Ray Goodwin when he comes on. It might be April, it might be May. We're not quite sure yet when we're going to be able to get together to do that, but we are going to do that. So, for all of those canoeing questions, but what I would say is be careful, um, understand that water is dangerous and i know that's an obvious statement but a lot of people get caught out by water unfortunately there are tragic uh, incidents every year where uh, you know not just in the uk but around the world where people fall out of canoes particularly at this time of year it's spring you might have nice warm uh, bright hot relatively warm sunshine it can be quite a warm day particularly if you're out on the water with the with the sunshine reflecting off the water as well if there's no wind it can feel quite warm you can be out in just a t-shirt you fall in the water it's still damn cold because it's it's march it's april and um, you're going to get hypothermic very quickly and if you can't get back in the boat and if you can't get back to shore you're stuffed um, let's not put too fine a point on it it's it's a serious issue let's not um let's not put cotton wool around that if you fall into cold water at this time of year and you can't get out you are going to die um, unless you're an extremely strong swimmer um, and most people aren't you know there's that freakish guy who fell off a trawler um, and swam back to shore miles and miles and miles and miles but he is being studied because that is freakish that's not normal if you fall off in the middle of a lake in a lake district or north wales and you cannot get back in your boat and you do not and if you're more than 50 meters offshore you're going to be dead unfortunately even with a buoyancy aid on Buoyancy aid is a must at all times. And then moving water, moving water is a serious issue as well. You know, if you fall out of a canoe in moving water, clearly it's often because it's constricted that's why it's moving faster and you're going to be relatively close to the side you can often swim to the side but then you've got other issues like foot entrapment getting strained on you know if you was if you were coming into the branches of this tree with any force by water you would potentially be drowned um, there's lots and lots of issues to be aware of and if you don't understand what i mean have a look at the whitewater safety and rescue video it's not a, it's not a teaching video it's just a bit of a fly on the wall of the whitewater safety and rescue that i did with some of my team um, just before christmas and that should give you some idea about the the power of water as well so understand the safety issues to start off with before you even get in a boat understand what can go wrong and make sure you put yourself in a position where if things do go wrong it's not tragic it's not lethal and if you're not sure about whether or not you're pushing the boundaries you know step stay on the safe side get some lessons as well get some basic lessons on how to paddle the boat because you'll enjoy it much more if you know how to paddle a boat Um, find a local club there might be a local club a canoeing club where you can go and they'll help you get up to speed with some paddling they may even be able to organize some trips where you can go with people Um, it's very um, questionable whether you should be out on your own As a beginner to be honest with you Um, because if something goes wrong and it's more likely to go wrong if you are a beginner because you're lacking in experience there's nobody there to help you there's nobody there to go and raise uh, the alarm or get help or what have you so try and find some other people to go with and and that's difficult for a lot of people but find a club get some lessons um, and then you'll start to understand the boundaries of what you should be doing what you shouldn't be doing in terms of personal safety you'll improve your personal skill set and then you can go from there. And of course, get a copy of Ray Goodwin's book, Canoeing, and the second edition is coming out quite soon. And I'm on the front cover, it seems, which is great. Although you wouldn't recognize me because it's the landscape that's really the star of that, um, of that photograph that's gonna be the front cover of the second edition, but do check it out. There's extra stuff in there. If, you haven't, if you've already got Ray's book, but you haven't seen the second edition, um, there's extra sections in there which may be of interest to you. Um, and if you don't have the book already certainly uh, grab a copy when it comes out you might still get a copy of the first edition um, otherwise the second edition is coming out in the next month or two i am told keep an eye on that on amazon but it's much better if you buy it directly from ray because he gets more cash which he should do because it's a lot of work writing a book Um, so hopefully that answers the question just be careful get ray's book try and find a club understand what the dangers are check out some of the other stuff that we've put out around canoeing, particularly the whitewater safety and rescue and just stay safe and always wear a buoyancy aid next one is from who's this from steve martin this is from um, he says some very nice things about my my blog and asked paul curtley thank you steve um he says, as a, as a youth, I used to be a Munro bagger. And if you don't know what a Munro bagger is, it's somebody who uh, bags Munros. yep. Um, all the mountains over 3,000 feet in Scotland um, were listed initially by a Victorian named Hugh, Sir Hugh Munro, and they became known as the Munros. Now that list has changed a little bit over the years, um, but they're still called the Munros. and it's any peak that's distinct from others that is over 3,000 feet is a munro and there are nearly 300 of them so there is a bit of a uh, a thing to go around and try and get as many of them done as possible and tick them off and people who do that somewhat compulsively are often known as munro baggers um so he's done some climbing as well he's been to the alps long story short kids and other things um got in the way now he's nearly 50 and he's got the time to do more stuff outdoors, which is great, he's helping with his son's scout group, and he's found my stuff very, very useful. So that's a useful background. Um, he's got two questions. Um, first one, water bladder or water bottle? With a bladder, I drink often. With a bottle, I always end up pouring away after a day out. Um, and the second question is, go to stove when wood is not an option. I use a petrol peak one giving your age away a little bit there steve um but heavy uh, a bit heavy but has never let me down no they are very very reliable but yeah they are heavy um so first question water bottle bladder, bottle, bladder or water bottle um it's personal preference i mean there isn't one that's better than another um some people love uh to have uh, a tube to suck on and that helps them drink little and often and that's fine um personally i i had a camelback for a number of years and i used it quite a lot for hiking hiking around the lake district and backpacking and i i don't like i i find it gives a bit the one i had gave a bit of a plasticky taste Um, i think it was possibly the tube or even the, the rubber sort of nipple on the end but fundamentally i didn't like it that much um, i felt it almost became a sort of compulsion where i was sipping on it even when i didn't need to and i know you need to keep drinking regularly um i much prefer to have a bottle and drink it and, and drink deep when i'm drinking rather than you know i'd rather just have a bottle open it up and drink a good gulp when i have a stop that's my personal preference um, that's what i've done for years it seems to work for me um, also, just in terms of keeping it clean um, in the field, I find it easier. A bottle I find easier than a bladder. Um, it's also more robust. You know, a SIG bottle made of aluminium or a NATO plastic bottle um, or a Nalgene bottle, they're, they're tough. You're not going to put a hole in them. Uh, bladders, I'm always worried about putting holes in them. So, from a wilderness perspective, I always prefer bottles. Um, that that's my preference but that's me that's not say that i'm not saying that you should do that if you find that drinking out of a camelback is going to help you you know put it in your buoyancy aid when you're paddling put it in your backpack when you're hiking and you're going to drink little and often and that means you get more water down you during the day then that's the right solution for you because at the end of the day the important thing is that as you say you don't get home and you've drunk nothing and you pour it all away that it's gone into your system the the water's no good in the bottle the water's no good in the bladder you have to be drinking it so whatever system works for you if you find that one works better than the other do that i don't think there's a right or a wrong answer um, the only thing I would say with bladders is um, even more so than bottles don't put cordial and powders and things in them because they're so bloody difficult to clean um, That in a, in a way that you're not going to get something growing in them and yes you can sterilise them and yes you can back flush them but that's just something else you have to do and you have to do it properly. So. I prefer not to do that um, with bladders in particular, I try not to do it with bottles at all, I just keep watering things, mix stuff in a cup if you need to, which is another reason why I like a bottle, because then you can mix stuff in a cup, it's harder to dribble things out of a bladder, personal preference though at the end of the day, drink water is the answer, um, the stove, the one stove, go to stove without uh, wood, um, It's probably still the Whisperlight International by MSR. I've had one since I was about 20, since I walked the West Highland Way back in the first half of the 1990s. I didn't have one for the West Highland Way. I had a cheap gas stove, camping gas stove. Um, My friend, an American guy, Wayne, um, who I was walking it with, there were five of us walking together, um, he had a msr whisper light he was cooking up food and boiling up water and making brews in about half the time that i was and consistently my as my gas pressure went down my boil times went up um and and i after that even though i was a student and i had very little money i went when we got back to edinburgh which is where i was studying and the next day i went down to i think it was Tysos on rose street and bought a whisper light and a and a fuel bottle and some Coleman fuel. And I've used that stove. It's the same stove I've used that stove ever since. I do have an MSR XGK as well, which I use for, uh, I take it with me on winter trips um, because if I'm, I probably won't be using it at all, but if I am, I'm gonna be boiling snow and I just want something that's fierce and the XGK is pretty fierce. Um, and that's a, that's a liquid fuel stove as well. But I've used the Whisperlite around the UK. I've used it in Europe. Um, it's a good backpacking stove the only thing you need to be careful of is fuel bottles on planes they don't like that very much um, even if they're empty because there can be vapor in the bottles so you might have to source a bottle in country Um, but the stove is normally all right Um, but that's my go-to I've also got a little um, Optimus Crux which is a tiny little fold-up stove a bit like the MSR Dragonfly but I like the Crux a bit better because it folds up flatter um, and it'll fit on the underside of a um, of a gas canister that's quite good for lightweight sort of overnight trips um, where you just want a gas canister a little stove you might just have one um, mug and boil up um, some water cook some soup or pasta or what have you just for an overnighter um, in the hills in particular because weight is really critical there that's something I use sometimes but if it's any longer than that I'll go back to my MSR and take an appropriate amount of fuel maybe i should do some more uh, blogs and videos on this sort of thing it's not really bushcraft but if it helps um, in terms of recommending what works i'm happy to do it let me know if you would like me to make some more content on those sorts of things uh, video i can do um, or or photos and blogs or both but hopefully that helps Next question is about fire steels and knives, and this comes from Adam. Um, Again, says some very nice things about uh, all that I'm doing. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate that you appreciate what I'm doing. Um, I do, and he says if he wasn't in Australia, he'd be on one of my courses. So all of you guys who've got the opportunity to come on my Easter weekend course, and you're closer than Australia, then adam will be disappointed if you're not there that's all i can say Uh, right so he says he's in australia and i've sporadically practiced fire lighting from a fire steel and found it easy in some instances perhaps i was just lucky and hard in others i think the main thing i find difficult is getting a good shower of sparks but i know that's more practice and yes i have watched your video on the matter my technique needs improvement however I also noticed that some fire steels are easy and some are hard to get sparks from at all. My Mora, like my fire with built-in steel in the handle, works very well. But uh, when using the steel with my Condor Bushlaw, I struggle and I struggle. And I have another steel, uh, some some other brand, um, that I can't get a spark from with the Mora. Condor or even the provided scraper okay so that sounds like it's not any use at all to me are there different qualities of fire steels and how important is the edge on the back of the tip of the knife my condor looks like it's ever so slightly rounded down the spine hope that wasn't too long a question just wanted to give you a good rundown of the issue no that's fine context is always helpful um it's always very very helpful that's good so adam um to a certain extent you've answered your own question use the one that works throw the other ones in the bin, for starters. Um, now, I think that the crux of your question is not is not really about the fire steels, it's more a case of, you've sort of made your conclusion about, this is a good fire steel, this is an okay fire steel, and this is a shitty fire steel. Um, and then you're just questioning, have you got the right inputs to make that conclusion? I think that's really what you're asking. Um, I would say yes, you probably have. Um, The spine, you want a good right angle on the back of a knife. And the reason I advocate using the part where the bevel comes up to the tip is because it's sharpened there, you will have a good right angle. Now with a Mora, that can be a bit tricky because the bevel's not as wide as your typical kind of Woodlaw or Woodlaw clone knife um, or as wide as they are on my PK-1 knife. Any flat beveled knife, a reasonable width where the bevel comes up to the spine if that's not overly rounded there which it shouldn't be it might be if it's hand forged but otherwise it shouldn't be rounded you should get a spark but there's a bit of a danger that you cut yourself and so you do need to be careful Um, a safer way is to use along the spine a bit further back but that can be that can be rounded even on uh, the mora clippers for example that's a bit rounded there. It's, you, you need to take a file to the back of the knife, flatten it, get a bit of a burr on the edge and then it'll just bite into your fire steel. So that's something you might wanna try. If you get a, um, a, 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 a put your knife, put it in a, a couple of bits of cardboard, put it in a vice or just knock it into a piece of wood um, what, what that you can get it out of, of course, and then just file across the top so that you get a flat, you don't have to make a depression, but just flatten it off, just take a fraction of a millimeter off just to get it dead flat and dead right angles to the, to the side face of the knife, and then try that on the fire steels. And if they're gonna work at all, it will work then, and then you can con- make a conclusion about those uh, about those fire steels. I wouldn't recommend you do it to your condor to start off with, do it on the do it on a mora knife, on a cheaper knife, file it down, test the fire steels, discard the ones that are not good, that are unreliable, keep the one that is reliable, and maybe buy another one at some point as a spare so you've got one that works well. And then um use your condor with the one that works well now if that's then not working so well as you would like maybe then you need to take the file carefully to the back of your of your condor as well just a bit just to just if it's slightly rounded just to flatten it off a bit um because at the end of the day you need these things to work the way that you want them to they're all just tools you can customize them to do what you want there is no right or wrong answer and if that's what it needs to make the stuff optimal do that um, they're there you know, they're there to make your life easier. At the end of the day, when it's pouring with rain and you need to get a fire going, you don't wanna be messing around with poor quality sparks or small sparks. You just want your kit to work and that's what I'd recommend. So, but just be methodical about it. Alter the cheaper knife, do your final separation of good from bad with your fire steels, discard the bad ones and then get your better presumably more expensive um knife to work with the fire steel that's best and you might have to modify that you might not and that's the that's the approach that i would take hopefully that's helpful and anybody that hasn't seen my how to get big sparks with a swedish fire steel um, i will link it um, from this video and in the show notes because that's a useful thing for everybody to have seen next one another fire question on bow drill this is from joe sweeney Um, Hi Paul, I love your series of answering questions. I've been working on my bow drill skills right now at a 25% success rate, even with a proven set. Could you speak on length? Oh, could you speak on length of spindle? (laughs) I can speak on length, don't worry. Can you speak on length of spindle? Um, I fear mine are worn down to nubs quickly. Additionally, uh, do you adjust your bearing block hole after each attempt? And lastly, do you remove the dust created from a failed attempt before your next attempt or leave it in the catch pile? Looking forward to more episodes. Cool, Joe. Okay, um, there's three questions there. Um, Length, I would say at least, at least, hand span, minimum, from little finger to thumb, minimum. You could go length of a Laplander saw, that's another good measurement. Um, You could also, you know, from here to here is probably too long. That's more sort of feather stick length. But so somewhere between hand span and forearm length is what you want to be starting with, okay? Um, It also, to an extent, depends on the length of your shin. Um, I've got quite long legs so I'll often start with slightly longer drills than other people for my height I'm six foot one but a lot of my height is in my legs and so um, that then means I just start with a slightly longer drill um, because as you get lower and lower and lower down towards the half, the drill gets shorter and shorter and shorter, it's harder to stabilize it because of the, there's a slight sort of curvature to, if you think of your shin, there's your knee, and then it kind of comes in your ankle and then it comes out to your foot. You want your hand clamped against your leg. And as you go down, it's gonna follow that curve and it becomes a little bit more hard, a little bit more difficult to stabilize. Check out my article, Bow Drill Keys to Success, and that goes through a lot of the areas that people need to finesse slightly to, to achieve success or to achieve more consistency. So length of bow drill, minimum little finger to thumb, if not a little bit longer. Now, do I change the, um, do I change the bearing block? No, not on every attempt, but what you want to do is make sure that the bearing block is a, is a wood that is harder than the drill and you want to make sure if you can that it's green and then you've got some lubrication at the top as well so if you could take a small piece of beech like a bit of a beech branch shave off one side of it put a small depression in it with your knife that's comfortable in your hand it's quite a hard wood compared to a, you know I, I don't know what you might be using willow and um, that will work quite well and if it's green it will have some lubrication in there. You might also want to put some extra lubrication in there, you might want to crush up a leaf and and put it in there or even just a bit of spittle will help. Not so much that it's running down the drill um, but a bit in there is just going to give you a bit more lubrication. Um, The other thing occasionally you might want to resharpen the top of the drill if it gets worn down but that's often a case that your drill might be slightly too soft if that's wearing down very very quickly. It's always a fine balance, every set is different but um, what you can what you can find though is if you're constantly adjusting where the set mates together it becomes unstable it wobbles around it doesn't really fit together very well so you want to sort of wear it in and try and use it but if you start getting smoke and a really rounded top or a very deep hole in the bearing block that might be a case of just needing to change the bearing block or finding a slightly tougher uh, spindle. Um, and then, in terms of the pile of dust at the bottom, generally, yes, keep it. Um, the darker it is, the better. Even if you haven't achieved um, a, an ember, um, you might have got some really quite dark dust. It's just you haven't quite pushed it over the edge. That is going to help massively. Leave it there, have a breather, have another go. And as long as it's not getting massively damp wh- where you've left it, which it shouldn't be if you've got it on a reasonable bit of birch bark or something else, then. Um, then you should be able to add to that and then when you do get an ember that's going to help consolidate into a larger ember so that's something that I would definitely do. Um, I used to work with somebody, a female assistant that we used to have um, at my previous job and as is often the case with Uh, females, they don't have the shoulder power. I mean, it's just a fact. Yeah, unless unless they're doing a lot of crossfit or lifting or something, they don't have the shoulder power that guys typically have. Um, That's that's just genetics. That's not me being sexist. It's observational. They don't have that. Um, And what she used, and it's the same with some guys. If you're slight, you you might not be able to do it. Um, You might have to have a break. Um, So what she used to do was, she used to get the set warmed up she used to build up some dust and then she would have a break for about 90 seconds and then she'd go for it um, just as a lot of guys would from from the start and just that warming the set would still be a bit warm and um, the dust would be there and then just that breather just allowed her to get the muscles oxygenated again to get some of the lactic acid out of her shoulder if there was some and then she'd go for it and then there was enough oomph in her system in her body to create enough heat and enough hot dust on top of what she'd already created to get an ember and that worked very very well for her and she became very consistent doing it that way so that's again something you might want to consider if you know it's not just about the set you know the other variable in the whole system is you and your fitness um, and your physique and we're not all built the same and so you need to play with that whole thing to get it to work for you that's why practice is really really important this concept that you can read a book on survival skills or bushcraft skills and then when you need it you'll go and do it bull crap. Um, pardon my french um, it, it's got with things like bow drill and things like feather sticks um, it, it's not going to happen you are not going to particularly when you're stressed and you're tired and you're hungry if you really 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 need those skills to work you need to have practiced them beforehand. It's like anything that you need to be able to do under pressure or that requires some skill before you can achieve a consistent result. You're not gonna be able to do it from scratch when you really, really need to. However many times you've watched um, Tom Hanks, you know, have a relationship with Wilson and get fired by friction, that's not really that realistic. You're much better off of practiced and sorted out all the variables and have a good understanding. And it sounds like you're getting there and hopefully those um, helpful tweaks will will do the job and as i say check out that article about um the keys to success as well because that's almost a, a troubleshooting uh, bullet point list of things you should be looking at optimizing for bow drill all right next one is a question that came via this came slightly strangely um, via YouTube somebody's made a YouTube video John Dove he shared a video with me via YouTube and I will try and share it and edit it into this video now if not there'll be a link <laughs> or both
1: <laughs> all right so I'm trying to learn at 28 years old how to how to track um, I wonder if anyone can give me some help with this. I'm going to have a look when I get home, obviously. But you can see there's, well, we use this area, a lot of crisscross paths. And, and, where was it? So I have already walked this. But I'll try and find this. There's some good little prints here. Uh, oh, there's one. Right. And that's about the size of my thumb, I think. What's my thumb? Uh, See, that leads off to this uh, fallen tree in the corner. We start to see more and more signs of fur around. Uh, There's a bit down here, white with brown tips. You can see that, but the majority of it's gray. Like some of this over here okay so is this badger i don't think it's badger because there's a can't see too many badger prints around but uh, the colors obviously make me think it is possibly deer i don't know um and then here's where they're living badgers obviously live underground as we all know so i'm assuming we are some kind of deer, all the prints around here are either rabbit or deer, so see if I can zoom you in or something, it's all fur lined look. And it's currently February, that makes a difference to anybody, oh well, right, thanks for that, any information,
0: hints, let me know and basically john's question uh, the message that came with it read as follows i'm a relatively new subscriber of yours i'm very interested in bushcraft and generally learning more about the outdoors i live in the cotswolds and whilst out on a ramble i came across this and wondered if you knew what i was looking at yes john it's deer hair um, and i think it's probably fallow deer hair but it may not be um, the resolution's not quite good enough um, if it's crinkly and if it breaks um, so you were wondering whether it was badger hair I think badger hair is very tough deer hair breaks and I think the clump the size of the clumps that were around I think it was fallow and basically what's happening is it's molting its um, winter coat and moving into its summer coat coat And you'll often find where the deer have been laying down, um, you'll find clumps of deer hair around. It's not because a deer's been killed or anything's happened, it's just molting. Just the same as if somebody's uh, combing, you know, you see people brushing their dogs out in the backyard and there's huge amounts of fluff coming off, it's just kind of like that. It's molting, it's leaving those hairs behind, that's what it is that you were seeing there. But nice that you're out and about noticing these things. A lot of people would just walk by that and not notice it at all. All right, next question. Cracking on. question via Twitter, and this is from Magna, at Very Eagles is his Twitter handle. And his question is, what knife skills are good to practice at home? Are there objects that aspiring bushcrafters should be able to carve? Well, I think first off you need your sort of basic knife safety sorted. So cut away from your body, cut away from your limbs, don't cut towards hands or fingers. Listen to that little voice in your head that you're doing something stupid. That's really good basic safety. I've written articles about that. Emma Hampton that works with me sometimes has written one specifically for kids as well. I'll link to that in those in the show notes. Get the knife safety sorted first and then in terms of practicing It's become a bit of a bushcraft cliche, spoon carving, yep, people who are not interested in bushcraft kind of laugh at it now, people laugh at, you know, and and this is something to be aware of, you know, the wider people who are watching this, um, we've to an extent bushcrafters have painted themselves into a corner as people who go to the woods, sit around a fire and carve spoons. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's just there's a lot more to bushcraft than just that. But if you want to practice carving spoons, one of the reasons it's become a bit of a cliché is because on a lot of basic bushcraft courses, like on our week-long elementary, one of the things we'll ask you to do is carve a spoon. And a lot of people, if they look at it superficially, think ah, oh, it's just because they you know, want to make something so they can eat. Well, yes, of course, it's got practical utility value, but there's a more important point. And the more important point is that you are taking, somebody's shooting over in the background, I don't know if you can hear. um, You're taking a natural material that's a lump of wood and you are turning it into something in your mind that you've imagined in your mind and you are transforming that piece of wood into something using your hands and using a tool now that is something that most animals on this planet cannot do is actually it's something that most people can't do these days Um, most people don't do very many practical skills that involve making things with their hands Um, and in terms of you taking a knife and making something that you need the skill set is begun by imagining what you need and then being able to fashion it and many of the carving cuts that you need to fashion just about anything you know, straight line, you know, splitting, straight line carving, thinning things down, inside curves, outside curves, they're all encapsulated in that one little carving project, which is why it's included in courses, because it's not so much about being able to make a spoon. It's like, I can survive better because now I can carve myself a spoon, which is what the Mickey takers think. It's like, you know, it's irrelevant. Why not just take your titanium spoon with you? Well, actually a lot of wooden spoons are lighter than titanium spoons, those ultra lightweight, people out there um but the point is that you're able to fashion something that's in your imagination as and when you need it that's a beginning of a much bigger skill set and that's why carving spoons is a good place to start and it's also you know i could say right go and carve a canoe paddle as your first carving project because it's got pretty much all the same um, objective difficulties in it in terms of outside curves, inside curves, straight bits, uh, you know, bits that taper down. It, it, it's got all of that in there but it will take you much longer and if I was doing that with you on a course I'd be like welcome to the elementary course. What we're doing this week is carving a canoe paddle. Um, we wouldn't get bow drill in or tree and plant identification or cordage or fire or, or shelter building or natural navigation or any of the other things we want to touch on. We wouldn't get that done but if we include a spoon It's going to give you a lot of the skills that you need in a small, compact project. So I would say carve spoons until you've got really, really good at them. And if you want to know what I mean by really, really good at them, um, my spoons are good. They're functional. They work. They're aesthetically nice. But if you want to take things to a next level, one of my students, uh, Paul Nichols, whose nickname is now Spoons, um, he took carving to a next level and check out some of his stuff check out his instagram i'll put a link uh, or at least i'll put his instagram tag in here i think it's paul underscore spoons off the top of my head but i will double check i'll put a link in the show notes go and check his instagram feed um, also there was an article written by his wife on my blog many years ago about paul carving in his in his living room um, he just practiced practice 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 so spatulas spoons practical things um, you can move on to doing something like I wrote a blog about last year which was I, I got a tool roll um, one of the frost river utensil rolls and I made a set of utensils for my camp so the spatulas and the serving spoons and all sorts in there and um, that could be a project but start off small and then in terms of camp craft um you want to be able to do some of the basic cut, cuts. You want to be able to point a stick. You want to be able to create beaks, notches. I'm going to have an article coming on my blog before too long about making beaked notches because it's one of the, it's one of the things in campcraft that's transformative in making lots of pot hangers. If you can do beaked notches and a withy and pretty much the world's your oyster in terms of bot, uh, pot hangers and, and hanging pots in different ways, um, those two skills in terms of using natural resources so I'm going to have an article coming on Beat's Notch before too long. Um, you could do what Morse calls a tri-stick. I find those slightly artificial. Frankly, personally, I prefer things that actually have a practical value. Um, so make an adjustable pot hanger that sticks to go together with a wet wedge because all of those things, all of those cuts might be on a tri-stick, but you're actually making something that's useful. If you win the kettle, you can make an adjustable hanger that comes apart um, a collapsible hanger rather not adjustable hanger collapsible hanger that you can fit inside the kettle and carry with you those are really practical things that you can do at home in the backyard with not very many pieces of wood but it really takes your skills up to the next level and then if you need to make one when you're out you can Um, and the more skill you have of quickly transforming something that's just a piece of wood um using a pattern that's in your mind and the skills that you have in your in your mind and your muscles into something which is of practical value that's why we we practice carving in bushcraft of course you can take it much further and get really into green woodworking and and all that side of things but in terms of field expedient carving those small projects that allow you to fashion stuff that works efficiently in the woods is where I'd be going so pot hangers and spoons and spatulas and all of those sorts of things that's quite a long answer need to get some of these transcribed into articles I think all right next question is about pants socks and boots and this is from Jim Bob Jim Bob um who goes by the twitter handle of bringlass 70 at p Kurt, he writes thoroughly enjoying ask paul Kirtley, do you get sick of people asking about kits and which socks pants boots etc you use yes to an extent i do because a lot of it i've said before not always and i as i say i am going to put some specific content out um video content about common questions particularly to do with shell layers and thermal layers and what to wear in the woods because people seem to want some advice and frankly in the UK I can see why they do because if you go to Black's or Cotswolds or any of the mainstream outdoor shops all the kit in there most of the kit in there is aimed at um if it's if it's at, unless it's specific like mountain biking gear or running gear if it's general outdoor or what they market as general outdoor gear it's really aimed at walkers and in the uk most of that's very alpine style walking kit it's quite short close fitting jackets it's all aimed at hill walking in the lake district and the peak district in scotland there's nothing wrong with that but some of that stuff doesn't bear up that well in the woods. It's not good around fires. It's not good with logs on your shoulders and brushing through undergrowth. You need slightly different stuff. More of the Scandinavian um, stuff works because they've got more forest and more of their outdoor life is in the woods. And. So the more the Scandinavian stuff works well and some of the specialist UK stuff like we talked about Snowsled who unfortunately are not producing um, ventile garments anymore but there are some other specialist producers around who might be more suitable than what you can get in the mainstream high street stores selling you know more mountaineery type stuff. So yes to an extent I I get frustrated when people aren't asking about skills and natural resources because that's really what this is about it's about bushcraft but equally people want to get out into the woods and they don't want to waste their money on expensive Gore-Tex jackets that are going to shred in the woods as soon as they step into the woods so I can understand why people ask the question I'm not going to answer any more questions about underpants though icebreaker merino boxer shorts that's the only place you should go or Howie's merino boxer shorts that's it end of story um okay this isn't an answer to a particular person's question it's it's an answer to many people's question i regularly receive the same question about where you can go in the uk to wild camp where you can go in the uk to practice bushcraft skills now in england and wales there are issues with land ownership and permission it's easier in scotland because of different laws but i have written a long and extensive detailed article about this on my blog it's been published in a magazine it's um also got additional thoughts and comments by people underneath on my blog so i will link to it it's called uh how to find a place to practice bushcraft in the uk um it's on my blog it's uh buzzards just gone flying through there that's nice to see um and it's got every every thought that I had when I wrote that and there's a couple of additional thoughts there from people in the comments. So the comments has formed a really nice additional resource there for people as well about how to get to places. Um, the fact of the matter is the law is the law. Some things are easier to do than others. And yes, it is a hassle approaching landowners. If you want to go to a particular part of the woods regularly, a particular area that's privately owned, like this is where I am now, if you want to go somewhere that's privately owned and have fires and build shelters you need landowner's permission and you need to go to the effort of finding the landowner forming a relationship with them um even if it's just a contractual i'll pay you every time i go whatever the contract or i'll tidy up for you or i'll come and help out um, and do this for you at other times of the year i'll help you with rhododendron clearing or i'll help you on a shoot or whatever it is yeah you you need to get off your butt and make an effort yeah There there aren't these mysterious places that we all go to um, to do bushcraft that are free for everybody to use. They don't exist. Not in the UK, um, in England and Wales. Because of the land ownership laws, you need to get permission to have a fire. You need to get permission to unearth roots for foraging. You need landowners permission to do that stuff. Otherwise, you're breaking the law. You can argue with the law, but that's the law. And I'm not going to sit here and say, go to this one particular place because that's a good place to go to. Because I I don't know, those places don't exist that I can just send you to. Um, So read the article, make the effort. Um, There's a couple of case studies in there about people who did make the effort and it worked out well for them. Um, It was always the same question when I was interested in air rifle shooting when I was a kid constantly people used to write into air world and air gunner where can i go and find somewhere to shoot and the advice was always go and speak to a landowner form a relationship with them yep 30 years later nothing's changed yeah it's the same thing you have to if you want to go and uh want to go and shoot if you want to go and um build shelters light fires unearth plants do all those sorts of things um you, you have to get permission from somebody who owns the land simple Last question from Isa. I'm going to try and include one every. Day. <laughs> you send me so many questions, ISA. And they're all good. Um, this is an easy one. This is a quick. Um, Hello, Paul. Drinking urine? Yes or no? Thank you, ISA. No. Yep. Now I know they do it on some survival shows, um, but that's Discovery Channel show. That's not real life. Um, they also do it in one of the episodes of Black Adder um, <laughs> with the legless sailor. Go and watch that if you've never seen it because that's about as realistic as some of those Discovery Channel shows. Um, don't drink your own piss, don't drink your own urine um, in a survival situation. I know there's some sort of left field health people who say there are some benefits to, um, benefits to drinking urine for health reasons i'm not i don't think there's any evidence for that oh and thank you by the way to um to people who contacted me with further information about um aspirin uh allergies and uh salix species willow species after the previous certain people in uh scientific positions and medical positions who have access to uh, journals um, managed to answer some of those questions and that's very very helpful thank you I don't know of any um, scientific evidence that drinking your own urine is good for your own health, even under normal circumstances. And certainly, if you are dehydrated, if your body is struggling to expel waste products, there is nothing to suggest that reintroducing that into your system is going to give you anything other than kidney failure and damaging your liver um, and potentially other issues related to dehydration Um, basically if you're in a situation where you don't have enough water to drink you need to conserve sweat you need to uh conserve effort and uh, you don't want to be drinking your own pee any more than you want to be eating your own feces if you don't have enough food frankly um so that's that's that one that brings us to the end of the show (laughs) hopefully you're not watching this or listening to this while you're having your dinner um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, on that slightly uh on that slightly uh, graphic finish um but thank you again for all the good questions um i know I, I seem a little bit irritable sometimes when people ask me the same questions over and over again but all that tells me is that i need to do more to get those answers out there um if you're not aware of the fact that i've already given an answer on something and if you're not aware of the fact i've written an article i'm going to try and highlight it here i will link it check out the show notes on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk check out episode 21 lots of links again and i will see you again very very soon on episode 22 and don't forget about weekend after next special episode which will probably be that'll be episode 23 we're going to record in the woods with live questions with those there's about six guys on that course already that means there's six places left for the uh for the bushcraft essential course over easter weekend and the first one to book after this show airs gets this lovely two and a half liter curtly kettle to add to their collection of outdoor cookery items so hopefully i will see some of you in person for episode 23 in the meantime i will see you for episode 22 before too long take care and stay safe cheers